You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Paul L. Vassy is Professor and Board of Governors Research Chair in Culture, Organization and Society at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. For the past 25 years, his research has focused on understanding the development, evolution, and psychobiology of gender diversity and sexual orientation. He has studied female homosexual behavior in Japanese monkeys for over 30 years, and for 17 years, he's conducted annual fieldwork in Samoa, a culture where feminine, same-sex-attracted males are identified as a third gender called fafafine, which is distinct from men and women. In 2015, Dr. Vasi established another field site in the Istmo region of Oaxaca, Mexico. In this area, the indigenous Zapotec people recognize feminine same-sex attracted males also as a third gender, or the Mushe. His research has been reported on in hundreds of newspapers and magazines worldwide, including the New York Times, Oprah, and Time magazine. He's been interviewed on camera for several television documentaries, most recently by the American journalist Katie Couric for the National Geographic documentary Gender Revolution. There, he spoke about the special role of the Fafafine in promoting well-being in their families. We really enjoyed our conversation with Paul, which illuminated the importance of understanding how our concepts like trans, gender identity, and gender are specific to temporal and geographical contexts. This discussion actually highlights several universal truths about sex differences between males and females and helps us understand the organic, naturally emerging trait of femininity in androphilic or same-sex attracted males. Here's our conversation with Paul. Hello there, Sasha. Hi there, Stella. We have an eminent guest with us today. Would you like to speak a little bit about him first, Sasha? Sure. So this is uh, Paul Vassi, who is a psychologist and researcher who's uh, most known probably for his work with the Fafafine and some um, individuals also in Mexico, I believe. And so, Paul, we are so glad to have you on the show. You can clarify anything that I botched there (laughs) in that brief introduction. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show, Stella and uh, Sasha. I appreciate it. I, I, uh, I'm probably going to preface this with I will probably make blunders in this show more than others because it's the one probably furthest from my my field of knowledge. Mm. Um, um, but it's probably a, a, an increasing, certainly an increasing subject of interest for me because it's like it gets referred to all the time. And every time it gets referred to, I wonder, but is that right? Is, is this correct? Mm-hmm. Is my information right? Who's saying mm. this? I, I kind of, I seem to doubt the information around this more than anything. So could you, maybe just to start it off, uh, start us off, could you tell us how you first got interested in the Fafafine and cultures such as that? Because I'm guessing looking at you, you're not Fafafine. <laughs> I am I am not Fafafine. No, I am not. Uh, how did I get interested in this? Well, when I was a, a PhD student in the, uh, at the University of Montreal, uh, I, I, my PhD dissertation was actually on female homosexual behavior in Japanese monkeys, but I had a very close friend, uh, uh, Nancy Bartlett, who is now a clinical psychologist in, uh, Charlottetown, uh, Prince Edward Island in Canada. She, uh, she was doing her PhD comps on, um, is gender identity disorder in children, a mental disorder. And she knew I had this uh, sort of side interest in these cultures that uh, have uh, more than two genders. So they they have something that is commonly referred to in the literature as a a third gender and sometimes more. So she asked me to come on board when she decided to publish this manuscript to sort of beef up the cross-cultural side of it. 
And um, we ended up going on and publishing that article. It was a long haul. It took about two years to do the uh, literature review and the and publish it. <clears throat> but then once we did that, we thought, well, wouldn't it be fascinating to go to a culture where um, this sort of gender variance isn't socially problematic and then uh, talk to the people and assess whether they're experiencing all of these key indicators of mental disorder in association with their gender variants, like distress and dysfunction, et cetera. And uh, we sort of cast around uh, and decided that uh, Samoa would be the, the, the way to go in terms of a field site. And uh, off we went. And we ended up publishing um, several papers together, one of which was called, um, I think it was called, What Can the Samoan Fafafine Teach Us About uh, Gender Identity Disorder in Children? What sort of year was this, just to kind of give us a grounding? Like This would have been 2003. And so since that time, I, I went every year to Samoa and then increasingly twice a year and sometimes even three times a year to do field work um, until the last time I was in Samoa was January 2020. Uh, collecting data, and then um, we all know what happened. <laughs> Everything got shut down due to COVID. Mm-hmm. So, what was the what was the conclusion of the paper? Was it in fact a disorder? I mean, how did you guys uh, end up parsing through that? Well, we distinguished between um, you know distress in relation to uh, gen uh, sex atypical behavior. Uh, and distress associated with one's own body. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, what we found was that there was no distress associated with individuals' uh, sex atypical behavior. They often uh, recalled that their sex atypical behaviors in childhood were a source of joy. They loved uh, doing girl things, for example. And they hated doing boy things like rugby or uh, working in the plantation. Um, But there were a very, very small number of individuals who reported that they were distressed or experienced dysphoria in relation to their own bodies. And um, uh, but those those individuals were a a tiny, tiny minority of the Fafafine that we, we interviewed. But what that study basically showed was that uh, how, or what I think it showed, is that how individuals experience distress in relation to their uh, behavior is culturally dependent. But regardless of how accommodating a particular culture is, uh, if individuals are dysphoric with respect to their sex bodies, then no amount of sort of accommodation is going to change that sense that I'm in the wrong body. But again, I want to reiterate that the vast majority of Fafafine don't fit that bill. The vast majority, the Fafafine would say something like, I'm fine the way I am. Uh, Mm. uh, 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 I don't need to change anything about my body. And before we go further, could you just kind of describe to listeners who have no idea what Fafafine is mm. and are just mm. going, what are they talking about? Sure, like, sure. It sounds like a, some kind of luxurious dessert, Fafafine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Fafafine are uh, biological males who are feminine and they tend to be androphilic. In other words, they're sexually attracted to adult males and it's masculine adult males that they're attracted to. Um, so <clears throat> the the degree of their femininity varies. From a Western cultural perspective, we might call some of them uh, effeminate males. Uh, others we might call transgender. But the word they use to sort of capture uh, male femininity is fafafine, which means in in the manner of a woman. Fa'a means in the manner of, and fafine means woman. And are they specific to Samoa? And have they always been there historically? And how are they kind of accepted in, in the community in Samoa? Well, there's controversy about how, how long they've been a, uh, around. But I think that if you... Uh, you know, if you look at the literature and understand these sorts of uh, 
gender and sexual variant phenomenon, <clears throat> you'll realize that, um, you know, Fafafine have always probably been around since as long as there were Samoans. Margaret Mead talked about uh, a feminine, an effeminate boy who uh, hung out with the, the, the girls and that individual would be considered a fafafine. That's not a word she used. Um, but as, um, you know, you move into more modern times and increasing westernization, then that male effeminacy um, starts to be elaborated upon in terms of how it's expressed. And you get more individuals who would probably be what a Westerner would call transgender or looking kind of like drag queens, maybe. Um, so you get that shift in terms of um, how Fafafine express themselves, which is uh, culturally and historically dependent. But, uh, you know, feminine, same-sex attracted males have probably always been, been around uh, in Samoa. Does the, the the other part of your question was do, do they exist in other cultures? Well, feminine same sex attracted males exist in other cultures. They're not called fafafine, but for example, if you go to Tonga, uh, just just to the south, they call them fakalaeti, and if you go to India, they would call them hidra. And if you go to another place where I work in southern Mexico, in um, an uh, area called the Istmo region of Oaxaca, in the state of Oaxaca. They call them mushe. So what these group the, 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 these groups vary in terms of their identities, right? You're a mushe or a hidra or a fafafine, for example, or a katoi if you're in Thailand. But uh, what they all share in common is they're all, they're all biological males. They're all feminine relative to you know the, the typical male, and they are. Uh, same, they, they're same-sex attracted, but specifically they're attracted to masculine males. Uh, and then the other part of your question was, well, how are they treated in Samoa? So treatment of these individuals really varies cross-culturally dramatically. Um, in Samoa, I've always said if I was a fafafine, Samoa would be a, a pretty good place to, to grow up because you're you're part of the family, you're part of the community for the most part. I'm not saying Fafafine never experience any discrimination, uh, you know, either when they're growing up or as adults, but uh, sort of um, fr from a cross-cultural perspective, um, there's a high degree of tolerance towards uh, feminine same-sex attracted males in this culture. Um, they're, they're sort of deemed as something that is not particularly remarkable. Mm. You you kind of shared a list of possible ways that one might interpret these traits or behaviors in other cultures, you know, like um, effeminate or transgender. And I'm also aware that, you know, at least in, in my own personal experience and as a therapist, I think sometimes when parents of children in the West notice that their male child is behaving in a very, very feminine manner, they might also suspect that he's going to be an adult gay man. And um, I'm wondering if the conception of gender nonconformity in gay males, is that something that is uh, a concept in Samoa or in the, the regions of Mexico that you studied? Or is that more of a Western thing? The idea that that gay men tend to be uh, somewhat more feminine in certain respects from straight men is that the, that what you're asking me about? And also that if there's a male that is quite feminine, rather than categorizing this individual as transgender or some different gender, that this is just a feminine gay male. Well, the the yeah, the places I work in, so Samoa and and. To, to a large degree, the Ismo region of Oaxaca, Mexico, um, gay isn't necessarily an identity that people draw upon to construct a sense of who they are. So, if if we go back to Samoa for a minute, there are very um, there there are, there are guys who are androphilic. They're they're same sex attracted. They're 
particularly interested in other masculine guys, but because they're not feminine, they're not fafafine. And because gay mm. isn't an identity category that they draw upon to construct a sense of who they are and that others draw upon to construct a sense of who they are, they, they're just men. And wow. they sleep with one another. Yes, they're androphilic, so they they are interested in having sex with other men, not with fa, not with fafafine because yeah, fafafine yeah. are right. feminine. Right, fafafine are right. feminine. A- androphilic, okay. androphilic males, same sex attracted males, are not. They're not just interested in males; they're interested in masculine males. Masculine o- males over mm-hmm. overwhelmingly. Um, so it's it's not really. You know, people make a a lot of a lot out of the fact that oh, fafafine don't sleep with each other; they sleep with men, um, and meaning masculine males. But but it's like, yeah, of course they do. They're androphilic and they they like masculinity. Wow! Can I ask, um, um, what about the women? Is there no equivalent with the? The girl, where's the girls in all these, if you follow me, all these cultures? Yeah, there, there is a category in Samoa called fatama, fa'a, meaning in the manner of tama, meaning man. And you occasionally see uh, these individuals in, in Samoa, but nowhere near as often as you see fafafine. And there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is just female gynophilia, so female sexual attraction to adult females. It's rarer than male androphilia, uh, by probably about half, if not more. So just from a purely demographic point of view, you're not going to see these individuals as, as much in the population. Another reason is probably that, um, you know, from what I can tell, based on my reading of the cross-cultural literature and the historical literature, which has been pretty extensive, um, androphilic males just have more of a public presence than gynophilic females. and They're just <clears throat> much more publicly front and center. And, um, and so uh, that, that's going to affect whether you see these, these the female equivalent, masculine females. Uh, and the other possibility is that the the female equivalent is perhaps more discriminated against in certain cultural contexts than the than feminine males so all of those things you put them together and it's going to just mean that you don't see um a third gender category for masculine females as commonly cross-culturally or historically as you do for feminine males when I heard you talking about the fafafine and how they kind of come to occupy that specific role in their culture, I thought it was very interesting that these individuals are identified when they're children. So the adults, based and you can kind of elaborate on this, but the adults are able to kind of spot this ultra-feminine behavior in these little boys and help them frame their understanding by giving them this label and kind of raising them in a way that they feel uh, kind of slotted into a, there's a space for you in culture. So I, I'm wondering if you can just talk about that. Like how, how does a family or a community identify these children young? And then what happens at that age that how, and how young are they? Well, they can be quite young. I mean, um, three years old, for example, and they express <clears throat> uh, female typical behaviors um so they're for example they're they would be more interested in socializing with girls they would be more interested in playing with dolls they would be more interested in being in the house with their mothers and their sisters cooking and cleaning um they would be interested in um, maybe putting on articles of women's clothing their their sisters for example um so so they 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 can be recognized you know, very young, as young as three years of age. And I I just want to emphasize a a couple things. One is um, nobody makes them fafafine. Their their male femininity emerges, and then people recognize that. And people say, oh, it's not a little boy, it's a little fafafine. 
And people in the community would say that because, you know, it's people are living in villages. It's a collectivistic cultural context. So there's lots of public visibility. Everyone would see this kid. They'd say, oh, it's a little fafafine. And the 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 the, um, immediate kin the family members would see that as well and so um the kid would grow up with um people in the community their peers perhaps certain family members um referring to them as 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 a fafafine Uh, but no one's making that kid a fafafine they're just recognizing what already exists and do do many of them kind of um, move beyond and, and become non-Fafafine, having been Fafafine as children. Basically, I'm looking at a Western version of desistance, if you follow me. <laughs> do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yes. So um, uh, some do go on to not identify as Fafafine and, you know, identify as men. They're a very, very small number, very small number. And when you talk to people, they don't buy it. They say, oh, he's pretending to be a man, you know, uh, so nobody, nobody really buys it. it, it, it and they're, 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 they're a very, very small number. The other thing I wanted to say about a comment uh, that was just made is there's this idea that they're slotted into some role. There, there, there is no role. There is no role for Fafafine. There, there's this there, there's this idea that's floating around out there that um, the society has a role for them. There's there's no role. There's no role. They're just fafafine. There's no. They have no more role than women do or or men do. In fact, we did a study where we asked about you know taking care of the family and who is more responsible for taking care of the family. Is it men or women or fafafine? And uh, if I recall the results of that study correctly, basically they're like everybody's responsible. So the, uh, there are cultures like India, for example, where uh, feminine, same-sex attracted males have an institutionalized social role, like the hijra, uh, a role that involves some um, religious functions and blessing children at christenings or uh, blessing weddings. But uh, those, uh, what, what you might refer to as role-specialized male androphilia, that's very rare cross-culturally. Um, I, I have a paper that's just been accepted and that, 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 that'll be coming out as soon as I do the revisions uh, on that topic. And it, it's far less common than people think. And um, there's, no, there's no social role like that for fafafine. Now, there, there is a tendency for androphilic males all over the world <clears throat> to go into certain occupations, but that's different from having an institutionalized role that says, oh, if you're this gender, then you do this job. That's, that's different. And do fafafine tend to go into male, role, male jobs or female jobs? In those kind of typical, stereotypical kind of roles? Well, the study that we, we've done a study on occupational preferences. So it's not the actual occupations that they adopted, but their preferences. And Fafafine's occupational preferences are shifted in a female typical direction. So if you came to Samoa, you would see that it's not at all uncommon to see Fafafine who are florists or seamstresses or hairdressers, you know, stereotypically people-oriented um, female typical occupations. That's not to say that there aren't fafafine doing um, other kinds of occupations, but if you ask them what their preference is, on average, they'll, they'll talk about the same sort of occupations that w- women list as, as their preferred occupations. Teacher would be another one. It's very common for Fafafine to be teachers. Mm, So those are all kind of female typical professions and jobs. Um, Yeah, they are when you're talking about group averages. Uh, On mm -hmm, average, mm -hmm, women will mm -hmm. say they're more interested in these people-oriented occupations. And Mm -hmm. men, men say they're more interested in things. I'm I'm glad you clarified this point about the roles because um what I was trying to 
what I was trying to get at, which I think kind of missed, is that there are naturally emergent ways of being, which I know is super vague, but like on this podcast, I'm always trying to get at this, that are organic and just spontaneously emerge from a person that are not necessarily pushed on them by the culture. And if a person naturally develops these ways of being, it's nice if the culture recognizes that and and has a place where that person can exist in their natural mannerisms and natural way. And I had written an article called The Same But Different Convergent Pathways of Gender Dysphoria to describe a more contemporary phenomenon where, at least in our work, we see teenagers learning about gender variance and then trying to put on like a a costume or a persona that doesn't feel authentic, at least to the people who have known them their whole lives or to their parents are saying, you know, this kid woke up one day and after spending a few months on the internet, threw away her entire wardrobe and tried to become this other person. So I think I, I find it really interesting to learn about individuals who have this natural, organic, innate variance in the way they express gender and the different ways that cultures might understand or interpret that because it's not always from the same lens as the the current zeitgeist says, oh, a boy who is behaving in a non-conforming way at four is a transgender girl. That is really actually quite a, a recent way of interpreting Whereas I think um, recognizing that that is probably related to their perhaps androphilia as they get older or these kind of other explanations. So I'm just I'm just really interested in the natural way that kids develop, however, their way of being, quote unquote, is. Yeah, I just want to say I don't find anything you just said vague whatsoever. Okay, makes (laughs) makes total sense to me what you just said. Yeah, so um, I guess I guess this kind of leads us into the issue. I mean, I really don't think you can understand papapine and you know associated phenomenon in relation to what's going on in the West until you're sensitive to the fact that transgender is not one thing, right? So there are forms of uh, what we would call transgender individuals in the West that uh, would be analogous to fafafine or fatama. And these would be <clears throat> individuals who are highly um, um, sex atypical in terms of their behavior and psychology in, in childhood. And those those types of individuals are exactly what you're describing, individuals for whom the sex atypical behavior emerges organically um, in, in, in childhood um, or organically earlier on. <clears throat> so when we're, but there are, of course, you, you both know, you're both well aware that there's other forms of, uh, of transgender individuals. There are individuals whose uh, uh Gender atypicality is more late onset in males. Um, they've, you know, we talk about autogynophilic uh, males. There are, uh, there's a growing population of <clears throat> um, um, natal females, adolescent young women or girls, uh, for whom their uh, gender atypicality is late onset, and they're referred to as r- rapid onset gender dysphoria in, in the literature. So I want to emphasize that in, you know all of these things get lumped together under this umbrella category of transgender, and it's it's really not from at least from a scientific perspective. Uh, it's not a useful way uh, uh, of, of thinking about all of this. And if we're going to draw comparisons between, for example, fafafine and all of those other related uh, phenomenon, in other words, biological males who are feminine in childhood and they uh, 
remain feminine into adulthood and they're same sex attracted and that same sex attraction is directed towards masculine males if we're talking about those individuals and what do they have to do with what's going on in the west well really they don't have a whole lot to do with you know girls that have rapid onset gender dysphoria they don't have a lot to do with uh, males that are autogynephilic. Uh, it's it's a it be, and why is that? Well, because transgender is not one thing. Yeah. Have you seen any kind of equivalent in your research globally of autogynephilia? I knew you were going to ask me about that. <laughs> uh, I have interviewed. Hundreds of papapine, for example, over what is it, the eight, 18 years that I've, I've worked in, in Samoa. And in that entire time, there's maybe one individual who uh, I think might be autogynephilic. But every other papapine that I've come into contact with uh, is androphilic they they like masculine guys but what about in the typical male population in Samoa like if there was really someone with autogynephilia Uh they wouldn't be hiding out amongst the fafafine they'd be like amongst the regular dudes well spotted and maybe they would secretly dress like fafafine or something like in their private moments I'm not sure I agree with you because in a culture in a culture that uh doesn't really have a huge problem with male femininity. Uh, it would be kind of easier if you were autogynephilic to to cross dress and and do it publicly. So I I'm not sure I agree with you. I think I think it is the kind of environment where if it existed, it sh- there shouldn't be a whole lot of constraints on its expression. The constraints would come when the that individual uh, attempted to court a, a woman okay. who would probably be okay. pretty perplexed at what was going on. Um, so are, are you saying yeah. that in Samoa, the masculine men can cross-dress and not have it be considered unusual or taboo? The, the masculine guys? Yeah, I... I don't think Samoans. Yeah, there, there. I don't think there's the same gender valence associated with clothing okay. and that that okay. we have here in the West. So, so you some. It's not often, but sometimes you'll see a, a guy in in a dress, and maybe you know his mother told him to go to the store and so he just grabs the closest thing there is and puts on this moo moo and goes to yeah, uh goes to goes to, you don't see it often but it sometimes occurs yeah. um yeah so have i seen examples of masculine men that are cross dressing um that i that i maybe maybe like one I can think of maybe one possibility that I pointed out to someone um, that I said, that's kind of unusual. Um, But as far as do I, do I think there's autogonophilia in Samoa? I think that there might've been one individual I met that may fit the bill, but if it exists, it's rare. And every other Fafafina I've ever interviewed is um, is gynephilic and their male femininity was early onset. You mean androphilic? They're they're androphilic. Yes, they're they're mm-hmm. they're they're androphilic and they're um, early onset. They're, fem- they're early onset. They're not they're not late onset. No. And is your deduction that autogynephilia is pretty much a Western based phenomenon? Well, look, all I can tell you is that. I don't see I don't see much evidence for it in the places I, in the places I work and I've done extensive archival research of the um the cross-cultural literature and there is 
vanishingly little evidence for it in the cross-cultural literature. I'm not saying there's none, but there's very little. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. This is so interesting because Mm -hmm. we are, at least Stella and I, we're in the weeds with all this gender stuff. And you Mm -hmm. know what? Like, Mm -hmm. we really could do a lot of good to explore these issues from a cross-cultural perspective because it really illuminates what are the what are the factors here and the manifestations of this that are maybe totally culturally defined and then what are the common denominators right and so like i think in your research paul at least one thing we might deduce is that across cultures Androphilia in biological males is often paired with feminine typical behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in the West. And in the West too. It's yes. just that yes. it's just that um male femininity is disparaged in the West. And so Androphilic males in the West don't like talking about it. And People in general don't like talking about it because they don't want to make androphilic males uncomfortable. Right. I'm not saying there isn't in every single culture a small subset of androphilic males that are unremarkably masculine, but they are not mm. the no- they are not the norm mm-hmm. for for androphilic mm-hmm. males. On average, uh, mm-hmm. androphilic males are are more feminine in certain areas than gynephilic males. In other areas, they're totally male typical like interest in casual sex or interest in sex with strangers completely male typical but in other areas like occupational preferences uh childhood behavior they are more feminine on average and the just the other thing i want to say so that i'm clear is that if if it, it would kind of be a surprise to me if autogynephilia didn't occur cross-culturally um, okay. Because it seems to me, you know, it just seems like there's a biological aspect to it when people are that compelled to to do something. I'm I'm I mean I could be wrong, but I I think the question is what what are the cross-cultural factors that influence how autogynephilia is manifested or how it's expressed? And essentially, we're asking the same sorts of questions with respect to male androphilia. Um, um, I've done lots and lots of research that shows that gay guys and fapafine and mouche, they share all kinds of uh, um, uh, biological and psychological correlates, which, so for example, they, they all tend to be later born. Uh, and they tend to have more older brothers, and they tend to have the they tend to have the same population prevalence rate. So fafafine and mouche occur at the same population prevalence rate as gay guys, not Western transgender individuals. Right. What is that prevalence rate? Uh, well, I mean, it, it it varies, but people will say, you know, around three percent, less than five percent, something like that. Um. They they both tend to have they all tend to have more childhood separation anxiety. They all tend to have more childhood gender atypical behavior. Um, and I could go on, but the bottom line is that you put all this together, uh, th- these 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 uh, traits are are shared across individuals who are they're all male. They're all androphilic, and they're all 
to varying degrees more feminine than the average straight guy. But they differ wildly in terms Mm -hmm. of their identities. So what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, to me, what it means and what I've published lots about is that looks to me like it's the same trait. And it looks to me like this trait has the same biological basis, but the environment in which the trait develops results in the trait being manifested or expressed in different ways. So I always tell people, if I had grown up in Samoa, chances are I would be a fafafine who was in desperate need of a wig. (laughs) (laughs) You have a problem, Paul. (laughs) You have all the traits, not enough hair. Gosh, that's a difficult Mm, place. I know that me and Stella, our brains are just going a million miles a minute. You you see it as fundamentally, as far as I can gather, and probably wrong all over the place here, but this is fascinating for me, as fundamentally biological in basis. The male, the androphilia, the sexual orientation is, is biological. And then there's it's the, 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 the sexual orientation, it's not, a, it's not an isolated trait. It clusters with these other uh, traits that we can broadly uh, put under the umbrella of male femininity. And then how that, how that gets expressed depends on the culture you're in. So if you're in a culture that is really uh, disparaging of male femininity, well, you try and, you know, you, you try and manage mm-hmm, and you, mm-hmm. you, but, you butch it up and you become a, a gay man. And after a while of living that way, it starts to become natural so that I'm not saying like, uh, you know, given the choice, gay men would uh, become fofafine. Um, you know, there's a whole life history of, of living uh, as, a, as a gay man. And so that becomes that becomes comfortable and you kind of can't really... Um, in some regards, imagine living differently. When I when I was in my late teens and early 20s, these types of questions really kept me up at night about sexuality and nonconformity and gender and all this stuff, even back then, before I had any idea I'd be doing this work. And one mm-hmm. of the, you know, when I was really into the whole um, social constructionism of everything, what I told myself at the time was that there's this template for how gay men act. And that's why a lot of gay men have these feminine mannerisms. And I tried to convince myself of that. And then um, I had a really dear friend in college who I, a male friend, who I I just intuitively felt like this guy is probably gay. He's never told me. And lo and behold, about a year into our friendship, he kind of spilled his beans and turns out he was definitely. So, and I think everybody intuitively understands that and has that experience. And of course, as I've done this work and done this research, I've realized these really are innate traits. This is biological. And I remember, Stella, in one of our early episodes, you asked the question, why is it that um, androphilia or same-sex attraction is often paired with gender nonconformity? Why? And I was like, I don't really know, but we can ask you, Paul. I mean, you, you mentioned kind of birth order. You mentioned a couple. It, does anybody know? Does anyone know? <laughs> You're, on, you're asking me about you're asking me about <laughs> specific mechanisms, but just let's back up for a second. Okay, and say, okay. Why would male androphilia be paired with these other feminine characteristics? Well, hmm. <laughs> Who are the majority of people on the planet that are sexually attracted to masculine men? Who are they? They're women. Yeah. So being attracted to masculine men is a female typical characteristic. Oh, okay. okay. So is it is is it a huge surprise that these people who are exhibiting this female typical sexual orientation are also exhibiting some other female typical characteristics? I I don't think that's a stop the presses kind of uh, <laughs> declaration. Do you? <laughs> You know what? It's it's not. But I think what at least <laughs> what, what's happening in, in our culture is that we've we've tried to really 
distance ourselves from the even the chance that there's such a thing as female typical. I mean, we really have had a lot of, and I think in some ways very important discourse around stereotypes and and you know that everybody is different and there's a lot of variance between people within a group and all of that. But I think it it can kind of create this mental trap where we act as though there's no such thing as female typical behavior or female typical traits. And then we get stuck and we end up in this kind of um, untethered no man's land of trying to figure everybody out on an individual basis. But the truth is there, there are, there are typical female typical traits and behaviors. And I don't know. I, I think it's like, I think as a culture, we're really struggling to make sense of all this. Like, how do we make space for gender nonconformity while acknowledging there is some sort of conformity in the first place or wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't have these categories? <laughs> Very good. Yeah. So you're kind of asking me about social policy here, which is sort of, uh, you know. <laughs> we like to ask people questions Could, that make them really uncomfortable and it, feel outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're grilling you now, Paul. And to give you a little bit of a mental space, just something you said way back just stuck in my mind. And I thought, is, is that applies everywhere? You said something about the female homosexuality is half the number of male homosexuality, yeah. if you follow me. Uh, and, in terms uh, of population prevalence, yeah. Yeah, in terms of numbers. And I thought, well, I remembered the extraordinary title of your PhD and the Japanese monkeys. <laughs> and I wondered, is that the same in, in the animal kingdom? Is it half, is the female homosexuality, is it reflected? Is this to do with social construct? Have I lost you totally? <laughs> yeah, no, no, um, uh, yeah, things are in the population of Japanese macaques that I worked worked with, which is in Arashiyama, Japan. It's is just uh, on the outskirts of Kyoto. Um, let me get, let me see if I've got this straight. About eighty percent of the females were uh, bisexual. So during a mating season, they would have sex with males and females. There were no females that were exclusively homosexual, although some a small number came close. Um, and that means that there were about 20% of females who were exclusively heterosexual. So um, That's like humans, isn't it? When I was a kid, I was well, pretty convinced that most women are bisexual, which I yeah. still kind of think that, but I don't know. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're, I think sometimes, just to throw it out there, that sometimes I think that sexuality and the orientation is a very male construct. This homosexual, bisexual, heterosexual, oh. and it's the way the male approaches sexuality. And actually, now that women are taking over, we're going, <laughs> we're going to like say, "Hang on, we need to look at this whole concept, this framework right. of orientation." Thank you, Paul. Right. Wow. Right. No, okay. Well, okay. Well, you know, you know, I, I think you, you, there, there's a, there's a kernel of truth there. There, there. You know, I teach a course on sexual orientation and I struggle uh, with content on fe female sexuality. Um, and the course is very much pitched in a sort of cross-cultural perspective, but I really struggle to find material. And uh, I, I've, I often find myself thinking, you know, and, and it's frustrating sometimes because you, you ask a question, you look at males, you get an answer. You ask a question, you look at females, and it's often like, uh, we don't really know, but uh, maybe we should be expecting way more variability in, in females if we just frame how we're thinking about sexuality and sexual orientation differently. So, um, yeah, uh, as far as but 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 going back to your earlier point about all this difficulty people have with sex differences, I don't have any difficulty with sex differences or sexual orientation differences whatsoever. I believe, you know, there's I believe they exist. Um, but to 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 sort of really delve into what you and and Stella have, have just mentioned, you have to you have to accept, okay, there's sex differences in how sexuality and sexual orientation are expressed. Until you get to the point, that point, you can never grapple with the kinds of um, issues that, that, that we're discussing here. Um, and as far as bisexuality goes, there, there is a sex difference in bisexuality. Women are much more likely to express um, 
bisexuality in terms of their feelings and behavior and, and identity than, than men are, than men are. It's not, again, it's not to say that male bisexuality doesn't exist. It's just there's a sex difference in prevalence. Yes, yes. Well, given what you've just said, I am now thinking about some of the contemporary sex and gender activism in the U.S. context. I think U.S. is like the most concentrated version of this and then other parts of the Western world where there is there's an explicit attempt to kind of um, diminish the importance of sex in understanding human behavior and an attempt to kind of blur the, the boundary between male and female. And sometimes activists who are going down that route will try to use the fafafine or other kind of third genders from other cultures to justify their position. But what I hear you saying, Paul, is that actually in order to even explore these third genders or to understand transsexualism or transgenderism, we have to stay grounded in the fact that there are literal sex differences. And and I want to I don't want to misinterpret what you're saying, but like as a researcher who of course you've studied this for decades now, can you just share your opinion on like this attempt to blur the boundary between male and female that you see happening specifically in, in the Western context? I think there's an enormous amount of confusion about sex. What is sex? What is gender? And the two get mixed up and mashed up. And the conversations very, very, very quickly become completely unproductive. You know, in my class, one of the very, I think it's it's after the, the well, we start off by talking about what is objectivity? What is subjectivity? What is intersubjectivity? What is sex? What is gender? Um, so I, I start the class off by really clearly defining these terms. And so I think I think an enormous amount of the confusion is just because what are what do people mean by sex? What do people mean by gender? And when they mean different things or when you have two people in a di- dialogue and they're using these terms differently, it just goes nowhere almost immediately. And I, as far as using fine, for example, to blur the distinction between male and female sex categories, I would say that that is a Western project because the fine have no doubt whatsoever what their sex is. The mushe have no doubt whatsoever what their sex is they know they're not they know what their gender is they know they're not men and they know they're not women but if you ask them are you in terms of your 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 body Body. are you Mm -hmm. male or female they're like yeah i'm they might not say the word male but they're 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 like yeah i'm 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 a man i'm male so Mm -hmm. i remember i remember interviewing one i mean this is the kind of this is the how nonsensical things become when you start translating some of this stuff into a field setting in a non-Western culture. So I remember being in um, in, in southern Mexico and asking a mushe, you know, are you male or female? You know, do you have a do you have a penis or a vulva? And she looked at me like, and she actually said, "Are you stupid?" <laughs> So I I, 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 so wait she didn't she didn't call you a genital fetishist? No, she didn't. Okay, all right, go ahead. No, Um, I I think a lot of these I don't know what the word you'd want to use gender activists gender theorists would really 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 get the shock of their lives if they went to some of these places, because a lot of the ideas just wouldn't be tolerated for one second. They'd be kind of mocked mercilessly. God, this is a real education. This is a real proper education of kind of, oh my God, take our head out of Western civilization for a moment. 
yeah. to get a bit of a wider yeah. lens yeah. on this subject. Good God, yeah. what the hell are we talking about half the time? Because we're actually, mm-hmm. we're literally, we're discounting huge other populations and cultures that have been there for many, many years that have massive contribution to this and are voiceless. As we mm-hmm. in our in our in our privileged worlds are rambling on in this esoteric way. And furthermore, you know, there's a real appropriation because I don't know, Paul, if you're following all of this really crazy activism, but there are people who are trying to say that even the concept of male and female is like a white Eurocentric concept that was brought in by European colonialists or something. And it, it's it's so absurd and it's really unfortunate because like you said, Stella, these individuals that they're trying to speak for don't really get a voice in this argument and they're being used as pawns, as kind of puppets to advance a very specific kind of Western radical academic postmodern conception of all this stuff. And it's really unfair and it's really, it is actually white centric and colonialist and ridiculous for for some of these American activists to be doing this. Sorry, Paul, (laughs) go ahead. But this is just, this really upsets me. Me too. It's a revelation. Yeah, I agree with I agree with everything you've said, everything you've said. And one thing I would like to to uh, say just so that individuals can develop maybe some critical skills when they approach all of this is when there's, for example, a, a, a third gender individual that's sort of uh, um, a journalist goes and interviews for, you know, a, a soundbite in, in, in one of these articles, ask yourself, ask yourself, where does that individual live? Are they living in the, the actual country that the article's about or are they living elsewhere? Uh, in, in in some Western country, and they're in a you know undergraduate gender studies program, because oftentimes <clears throat> individuals within these 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 cultures are are not accessed for these journalistic articles, and the reason for that is that probably it's just more difficult to contact them. Um, whereas if there is uh, say a fafafine living in Sydney, Australia, or Auckland, New Zealand, then it's easier to contact that person. And but but you have to ask yourself, like, when was the last time that person spent any time in the country that's being discussed? And you know how oftentimes, oftentimes those individuals might have particular ideological agendas because they've you know ad- kind of adopted the 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 western narratives whereas when those individuals and i've seen this i've seen mm-hmm. this play out mm-hmm. when those individuals do show up in samoa they're or 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 or, or uchtan for example they're often kind of considered to be foreigners in a sense yeah well the example that's coming to my mind is like you know my family is from egypt but i was born and raised in the west born in montreal so so if someone wanted to learn about like how egyptian women think about things and i were interviewed i'd be a terrible subject Mm. because i am my my perspective is influenced by where I come from. And frankly, the the few times I have been to Egypt, I stand out like a sore thumb. I don't fit in at all. So you're right. I think people have to keep in mind that where somebody lives and what ideas um, influence them makes a big difference. And something I thought about earlier along the same lines about (laughs) autogynephilia, I just can't, can't let go of this question. You know, I think about at least in the contemporary way that this is showing up, a lot of males who describe autogynephilic fantasies, they're talking about the same things. They're talking about high heels and sexy lingerie and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking like, let's say you were in kind of a more traditional small village or something in India, and there was a male with autogynephilia. Would his fantasies be more surrounded around... The, the kind of clothing that women wear in their culture or is the globalization yes. that exists online also 
Like, is that man going on forums that are mostly full of Americans sharing pictures of themselves in heels and then adopting? Like, it's just, you know, the, the, the lines now are so blurry from one culture to another. And even, you know, places far away are being influenced by Western concepts of like, what is social justice? What is sexuality? What is transgenderism? America seems to have exported a lot of its beliefs about this. So I don't know. It's I don't. It's not a real question. It's just like a wow. We're blurring the lines between all these cultures, actually. Right, and there's variation among autogynophiles in terms of what they might find sexually arousing. Um, so whatever was sort of coded mm-hmm. or imbued with this idea that this is feminine, that would be that would be uh, sexually arousing and, 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 uh, you know, what feminine femininity means varies cross-culturally. So you're going to get variation in terms of how autogynophilia might be expressed. One, mm-hmm. one would expect one, one would predict. I mean, the, the, like I said, there's very, very little research, very, very little evidence for autogynophilia outside uh outside of western cultural context there's a a a study or two maybe in in um uh, japan uh and then the and then beyond that there's just like suggestive anecdotes you know i've been able to locate one in central asia one in uh fiji but very very few yeah Again, not it doesn't necessarily mean it it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It just means it just means that maybe it's uh it's expressed in a less public manner and mm-hmm. so it's more it's more hidden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um we're coming towards the end now of God, I think my most uh, stretched brain stretching episode of the wider lens. Um uh there's two kind of questions that are kind of ringing in my mind and um, that I would like to ask and they're both quite different. One is uh do the fafafine do they marry or you know equivalent of marry, you know, do they set up kind of home as such and is it accepted and you know what I mean do the do their partners have a, a, an identity? And the second is completely different, which is, are your, is your study, studies and is your work considered controversial or is this very accepted in your specific, quite probably not very large amount of people who are studying specifically Fafafina in Samoa? Are your, is your work considered controversial at all? Uh, is my work considered controversial? I guess by it would be considered controversial by people who take more of a social constructionist approach to these issues. They would, they would have serious problems with the kind of work I do. Um, the, the sort of people I respect that would be studying the biopsychology of sexual orientation. I, I think they, they think of me as solid in terms of the work I do. So, uh, if you wanted to find uh, critics, and I'm sure it wouldn't be that hard, you'd <laughs> they're probably... all on Twitter. We'll find out after this episode. <laughs> they yeah, all follow I, me. I, I guess they would be. I guess. I guess they would be in what I would consider to be social constructionist gender sexuality circles. Um, yeah. And in terms of your other question about relationships, um, lots of Fafafine have boyfriends. Um, uh, some Fafafine, a small number, very, very small number, are in really long-term relationships, like multi-year relationships. It, it exists, but it's not the norm, probably. Um, yeah. Are there are there um, kind of masculine males in Samoa who like don't ever date or have relationships with Fafafine? Like, are there certain males that are like, yeah, I like Fafafine and then other males that are like, no, I'm only interested in regular women. Oh, yes, absolutely. So Mm -hmm. we've done studies where uh, we've done, for example, viewing time studies of men who only have had sex with women and men who have sex with Fafafine and women. There, it's mm-hmm. very rare to find a man who only has sex with Fafafine. 
so so certainly they exist but um perhaps the important point which again um you know raises the question of cross-cultural variation and why it exists is that um it's not difficult to find men who have slept with fafafinian women um, mm. it's 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 not uncommon well, Paul, this has been an absolutely wonderful and fascinating conversation. It feels like it went by yeah. really, really quickly. <laughs> it was really um, interesting. It does, yeah. Yeah. I think we scratched the scratched the the surface on this one. Yes. And I think we scratched an itch that both Stella and I had really been wanting to get at. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. I I, I really, uh, I I like the podcast. I like the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. Mm-hmm.